You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Who is Jesus? That's the ultimate question. And how you answer it determines your eternity. You see, Jesus is the dividing line. Belief in him leads to eternal life, whereas disbelief leads to eternal death. Who is Jesus? I can't overemphasize that question enough. And before we go to our scripture text and hear Peter's answer, let me remind you that the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are telling about, they are describing events in Jesus' life as they happened. This means we get their honest wrestlings. Now, the Gospels themselves were written some 30-plus years after the events they describe. So they were written well after the resurrection of Jesus. But as they look back, they're remembering how they felt at the moment. One of those gospels is Matthew, we'll hear from in a moment. Matthew and John, out of the four, are two of the original 12 disciples. So Matthew and John were there for all three years of Jesus' public ministry. Let me briefly describe the other two to you then. So Mark writes his gospel from a little different perspective. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, referred to as John Mark, but he was also there. He had firsthand experience and knowledge of Peter and Peter's sermons about Jesus. The other gospel was Luke. You may know that he was a medical doctor, also a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Scholars believe that the way that Luke writes his gospel is that he actually goes and interviews those who had encounters with Jesus. So kind of like a a good reporter, he would go to each individual, tell me, what was it like? What was Jesus like? What happened? What do you best remember about that experience? So our text is going to follow Matthew's telling. Again, Matthew, one of the 12 original disciples, so he is his own eyewitness. Prior to being a gospel writer, Matthew is a tax collector who leaves his business to follow Jesus. And Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel, his first purpose is to show his fellow Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. Now, the disciples themselves don't always get a clear understanding of who Jesus was. Leading up to Matthew 16, our text for today, about the only recognition of who Jesus was to the disciples prior to this was a disclaimer in chapter 8 when they revealed that they called him Lord. And it was almost like a foxhole prayer. It's like, Lord, I don't know if I believe in you, but if you get me out of this, I will. You see, they were on a boat when a storm swept down. And out of fear, they cry out, Lord, save us. Not necessarily a prayer of faith. Now, the next time that Matthew records the disciples declaring anything about who Jesus is, is in chapter 16. 
Eight chapters and a whole lot of miracles later. And we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the first thing I want to make mention of is Jesus' use of that phrase, Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself. It comes from the Old Testament prophet, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In that prophecy, Daniel is describing Jesus the Messiah. 500 years before Jesus walks on the earth, Daniel describes one who is going to come from heaven, sent by, in his words, the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, And when Jesus arrives, he will have all authority, glory, dominion, and a kingdom that will never end. That's Daniel's depiction. That's Jesus. So he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus knew what they were about to disclose. I mean, believe me, when several times in the New Testament gospels, Jesus reads people's minds He knew their thoughts. He certainly knew what others thought of him. But the disciples need to voice it for themselves. They need to declare what others are saying to see if it sits right in their heart. Is is this what we believe? Is this what we would say? Who do people say that I am? Here's how they replied. Next verse. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So this is the disciples saying what the crowd is saying. So there were a number of different answers as to who Jesus was. The point being, the crowds don't fully understand who Jesus is. It's just like many people today. Some people today would say that Jesus was a good moral man who taught good things to the world but he was not anything more than that. Such is the teaching of Christian scientists. I'm not sure why they're called that. Because <laughs> there's nothing Christian about them, and they certainly aren't scientists. And Christian scientists would say this. Jesus did not suffer. He did not die on the cross. He was not resurrected physically. He is not coming back. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus lived a perfect life, but he was not God and he is not coming back. Mormons believe that Jesus was the elder brother of all men and spirit beings, including Lucifer, and that his death did not provide atonement for all sin. New Age teaches that Jesus was not God, was not a Savior. Instead, Jesus was a New Ager who tapped into the divine power that anyone else can as well. And then he either traveled to Tibet or India, and he learned mystical truths so that he could rise to a higher level of spiritual realms. And then there are people today who go so far as to say, Jesus wasn't even a real person. Then they've never thought about the fact that there are many historical evidences outside of Scripture, not just in the Bible. There are first century historians 
proving that there was a person named Jesus who lived in first century Palestine, who did miraculous things and taught tremendously. You see, the world has all sorts of thoughts about who Jesus is. The more important question is what Jesus posed next. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Now, before we hear from anyone in the band of disciples, it's important to know the context of this question. We're hearing it in Matthew. By the way, Mark and Luke also share this same encounter. All three of them have Jesus asking these questions while he is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Here's why that's a big deal. Caesarea Philippi is a very religious place. It's just that there's not much there that lifts up the true God of the Bible. About the only thing that was of any significance to God's people in that town was a spring that provided water to the Jordan River. Beyond that, Caesarea Philippi was pretty much just a mainstay of practically every Greek and Roman worship center. And there were temples and shrines and statues galore. I'm going to show you a series of of three pictures. The first one, if you'll put that up on the screen, this is Caesarea Philippi. Now, it's not an existing city as such, as you can tell. You see the waters there. Those come from a spring inside. If you kind of to the the left side, you can kind of see an open uh, mouth to a cave. That's where the spring starts that flows down, eventually becomes one of three tributaries that lead to the Jordan River. But you can start to see some ruins there in the background underneath that rock formation. Second slide. These are some of the remains of temples or pillars on which statues stood for all manner of Greek and Roman gods, goddesses, worship centers galore. These are the ruins from 2,000 years ago. And then the final picture. This is a niche that is formed out of the rock right above that cave area, meaning they would put statues, busts of their gods and goddesses up there. They would be kind of up high and, and worshiped as people looked on. The point is, ask any inhabitant of the city of Caesarea Philippi, well, whom do you worship? Who is your God? And there they would point out any number of things. Well, that over there, that's our God. Or up there, up on that rock formation, that's our God. He's just a little rigid. Come on, that's funny. Rock formation, rigid. And yet it's here in Caesarea Philippi where all the people would readily say, well, that one's my God or that one's my God. Jesus asked the question, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers on behalf of all 12. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Messiah, or God's Christ. That's Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. Christ is a title. Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, it literally means anointed one. You see, the disciples understood that Jesus is more than a man. Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the anointed one. This is a picture of kingship, that he is the anointed king, anointed by the Father, sent by the Father to rule and bring deliverance and bring restoration and bring salvation. The disciples got that much. Now, how does Jesus receive Peter's answer? Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Son of Jonah, this is Simon Peter. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petros in Greek, and on this rock, Petros, so there's a little play on words, I will build my church. Now, let me stop there a minute. There are some who are interpreting what Jesus is saying. Okay, it's upon you, Peter, that I'm building my church. Others interpret this, it's upon his declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, that Jesus built his church. And he goes on to say, but the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome it. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then Jesus gives us that very Presbyterian command. He ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. (laughs) It's the one command we get right. Don't tell anyone. I wasn't going to. (laughs) There'll be more on that in a moment. He goes on to say, and I will show you this larger context in Matthew chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the first time that Matthew records the coming suffering of Jesus. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that his kingship, his messiahship is not going to go like they think it will. You see, at that time, all of Israel was under Roman rule, which meant God's people didn't have much on their own that they could do without permission of the Roman government. God's people hated that they were ruled over by Rome. But Jesus is not going to overthrow Rome in the way they think he will. He is not going to go to Jerusalem and rule from Jerusalem, put down every enemy of Israel like they think he will. Jesus wants to make this point very clear. He is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the leader. He's going to be killed and then be raised on the third day. This is important because it means that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. The rejection of Jesus and his kingdom is not a surprise to him. Jesus is actually predicting this is what's going to happen. This is how things are going to go. It is necessary for him 
to suffer, to be killed, to be raised, for Him to be the Messiah that we need, to be the Savior who will deliver us from our sins. You see, that's why He goes to the cross, to take our place for our sins. Jesus is not going to walk the path of popularity. He's going to walk the path of rejection and humiliation. The road ultimately to receive glory as King and Messiah must go through the cross. Peter can't fathom this at that moment. So Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus then announces the requirements for following him. He said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. He goes on. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone gain or give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man, again, that's Jesus talking about himself, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some are standing here, some standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What's Jesus saying? To follow him means we can no longer live just for ourselves. I don't mean this to be funny, but it's just like marriage. The worst thing we can do in marriage is be selfish. Think only of ourselves, what we want, what our passions are. In fact, you want to make sure there's little chance for your marriage to survive? Then live as independent of your spouse as you possibly can. It's the same in our relationship with Jesus. You want to find real joy in that commitment? Then bring him in on every aspect of life. Think about how much of a difference he could make in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, if we were sold out for him, if all our commitments were accountable to God, if we lived in such a way that we would never be ashamed of him, if we lived in such a way that we would never be ashamed of his word, that we would lay ourselves on the altar of obedience and go public with our faith. You see, whatever that earlier thing from Jesus about not telling anyone was, well, really it was about Jesus saying, my time is not ready yet. Don't tell others because all the curiosity seekers are going to come and think that I'm some circus act. That was then. But after the cross and after Jesus' resurrection, it completely changed. Now it's all about what Jesus told his followers in Acts 1.8. He said this, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city where they were living. In all Judea, the broader region, Samaria, the neighboring region, and to the ends of the earth. They are to be his witnesses. 
And the rest of the book of Acts is exactly that. It's the disciples going public with the good news message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me speak just briefly on that topic for a moment. Several years ago, I was in a discussion with someone about their faith. They were adamant when they said, I keep my faith private. It shouldn't be public. And I said, no, it's got to be personal. It's got to mean something to you, but it can't be private. But in fact, we live in a day when everyone is okay with your Christian faith as long as it's private and not public, as long as it doesn't intrude on others' lives. I mean, how many of you on social media are not putting Jesus out there right now? Don't raise your hands. Or you're at work, and yet again, Christianity is the pinata that's taken a whack on every social and moral issue. Or you're a student, you're in class at a public institution, and all of a sudden they're talking about Christianity again. And it's not in a public light, I mean, not in a positive light. I mean, like, who saw that coming? Maybe this is where you raise your hand. You say, okay, since y'all are talking about Jesus, as a Christian, I'd like to talk about Jesus. Since you brought him up, and we all believe in diversity and tolerance, right? I thought I'd give you an opportunity to exercise that great kindness. Now, there may be several reasons why we don't go public with our faith. And I have a hunch as to the number one reason. You don't want to be persecuted. I mean, think about it. Let's go all the way back again. What did they do to the apostle Peter according to tradition to tradition at the end of his life? How was he crucified? Upside down. Who did he worship? A crucified Jesus. How's it going to go for you? Probably not real well. Not much of a sales pitch, is it? <laughs> There's no door-to-door salesman who does it this way. Hey, take my product and you'll explode, right? But here's the big idea. Someone went public for you. You didn't know about Jesus, and someone who knew Jesus told you about Jesus. Someone went public for you so you can go public for someone else. Because you see... The goal is not to escape this life without persecution. The goal is to escape this life with converts, to take as many people with you who love Jesus as you possibly can. The big idea is this. You never know when you're going to have an opportunity to talk about Jesus, right? You don't know when you're going to have an opportunity to pray for someone. You don't know when you're going to have an opportunity to answer someone's questions. You don't know when you're going to have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus. You just don't know. You see, there are opportunities all the time. Maybe you're at work. Someone says, I got diagnosed with cancer. Can I pray with you? How can I serve you? Or maybe you go deeper. Where are you with God? Maybe you go deeper still. Do you know that we worship a God who suffered? And then you need to know this. The Bible promises that the Holy Spirit will empower you to speak courageously about Jesus. Let me give you an illustration from a Bible character. Uh, Let's talk about Peter since he played a prominent role in the 
text we read from Matthew. In the New Testament book of Acts, we see Peter preaching publicly about Jesus. He preaches publicly about Jesus at the temple. He preaches publicly about Jesus in the marketplace to people who don't agree with him. He's pretty courageous, right? Was Peter always that courageous? Was he a guy, when you looked at his life, you would say, yeah, Peter's courageous. I mean, look at him. His cape flies in the wind. I mean, he, he's ready for battle. He's Peter the courageous. He's Peter the lionhearted. No, he wasn't always like that. There was a time that he was a pretty big coward. They arrested Jesus. He's on trial. They're about to crucify him. Peter's following him. The Bible says from a distance. Why is Peter far away from Jesus when they're going to crucify him? Because Peter's not signing up for suffering. He's warming himself by a fire at a distance, trying to keep his faith anonymous, keep my faith private. Evidently, there's others there. They start chatting, and Peter must have chimed in. Someone says, oh, oh that's a weird accent. Where are you from? From the south. No, that's a rural accent. You're from Galilee, aren't you? Isn't that where Jesus is from? Didn't I see you with him? How does Jesus answer that? I don't know Jesus. Never met him. Starts cursing. And just a few weeks later in Acts, Peter's preaching in public about Jesus against all opposition. How is that possible? What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit filled Peter. You know we live in an increasingly hostile culture when it comes to faith in Jesus. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to empower us to talk about Jesus. And you might say, that's right. As soon as I get courage, I'll, I'll talk about him. That's not necessarily how it works. Pray. Then speak. And then the courage comes. You see, the courage comes as you speak, not necessarily before, because it's about faith. Okay, I'm going to talk about Jesus now. Uh, I'm not sure how this is going to go. I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. Am I going to have the courage to finish this? But I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to start talking about Jesus. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will give me the right words to say and the courage to endure whatever's going to come my way as a result of talking about Jesus. And let me say a word about those that we will encounter who are our non-Christian friends. Christians and non-Christians, especially in our current moral, spiritual, cultural climate, there's a list of things that we disagree on. But it's actually deeper than that because for the most part, a non-Christian begins with this assumption. I'm basically a good person. I don't need to change who I am. Maybe I need to improve a little bit, but I'm basically a good person. All I need to be is loved, accepted, and approved of for the kind of person I am. And if you tell me I need to, that I'm wrong, that's hateful. If you tell me I need to change, that's intolerant. If you tell me that some of what I believe or what I like or what I feel is unacceptable, that's unloving. You see, as Christians... 
Our highest authority is God, not us. And so we confer with the timeless truths of Scripture, not our own timely preferences. And we believe that we are needing to change because sin has affected and infected everyone and everything. And the Bible summarizes all this in one word, repentance. Repentance is looking at your life and realizing you've been living for yourself and knowing that God wants more for you. It's very loving, in fact, seeking to have someone repent. It's the most loving thing because what's behind it is a God who died for us. And rising from death, he wants you to hear, I will forgive you and embrace you and change you. That's what repentance is. It's an invitation to be embraced by the love of Jesus. And the truth about the love of Jesus is that Jesus' love takes you as you are and refuses to allow you to remain that way. So you come to Jesus as you are. But coming to Jesus means you are acknowledging that you need to change. And that's repentance. And then Scripture gives us this great promise for those who repent. God sends his refreshing. Last verse to show you, Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. But not only that, but that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Don't you want to be refreshed? Doesn't that sound like an awesome concept? Here's how the dictionary defines refresh. Give new strength or energy to. And here are some of the synonyms. Reinvigorate, revitalize, revise, restore, fortify, enliven, stimulate, energize, exhilarate. The Bible is telling us, are you weary? Maybe it's because you're trying to do life on your own. Come to Jesus Christ. God's anointed, our restorer, our deliverer. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.